the phone buzzes with a text message. Hospice says it won't be long now, a matter of hours or even minutes. I'm trying not to count the seconds between each breath she takes. Fingers type on a smartphone in reply. I'll be there in 15 minutes. This is church. We need $15,000 to get the ground ready for the parking lot expansion, and we're trusting God to provide that for us. Pastor, my wife and I have been praying together. God has really blessed us financially. We would like to pay for the rest of the parking lot. Here's the check. This is church. My car is making this really weird sound, and ever since John died, I just don't know what to do with stuff like that. Debbie, Floyd and I were talking, and when your car is making weird sounds, just tell us. He'll listen to it, and if he doesn't know what to do, he'll tell you where you should take it. This is church. I always felt I had an ideal childhood, but in my small group, I've come to discover some things that I'd hidden, even from myself. Some really serious wounds that affect how I relate to God and to others. Some came from family members. Some came from circumstances. Some came from my own bad decisions. I'm finding, finding healing as I take all of them to Jesus. This is church. At the communion table, the pastor reads Jesus' words. If you're offering your gift at the altar and remember your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them and then come and offer your gift. The pastor looks up from the text and notices an elder has left his place and is quietly talking to another man about a third of the way back in the sanctuary. The congregation waits in silence to be served communion, watching the elder and the other man talk and then embrace, and the elder returns to his place to serve communion and to receive communion. This is church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. Everyone was filled with a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give anyone who had need, to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is church. We've been talking together over the past several weeks about where to look when you're in need. Look to God, look to Jesus, look to the scripture today. I want to counsel you to look to the church. Better to look to your church. The church consists of all those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who are redeemed by his blood, who are born again of the Holy Spirit. Christ is the head of the body, the church, which has been commissioned by him to go into the world as a witness, preaching the gospel to all nations. The local church is a body of believers in Christ who are joined together for worship of God, for edification through the word and prayer, for prayer, for fellowship, proclamation of the gospel, and observance of the ordinance of baptism and the Lord's Supper. This is church. 
Those words that I just read you are from the Alliance Stand or the Alliance Statement of Faith. We take a lot of words to describe what church is, but still a lot of people have mistaken ideas about what church is. For example, the most common mistaken idea about what church is is that it's a building. That this is a church, this building. And that's natural to say because I'm guessing, especially the parents said this morning, hurry up, you guys, we need to get going to church. And when you think of it, you think of the building, the church. So at a very early age, people identify the church as the building. It's not. You understand that, right? We just call it that because this is where the church meets. In fact, there were no churches in the terms of buildings. There were no buildings that were churches in the day of the apostles, in the early church, in the New Testament church. And that day they met, well, we just read it in the passage I read, they met in the temple courts or they met in houses. In fact, in in one place in Ephesus, I believe, in the the book of Acts, it says they met on the beach. That's the church I want to go to. I want to go to the church that meets on the beach, right? That sounds really good, yeah. They met wherever it was conducive to having an interactive relationship with one another and with God. Wow, that wasn't a bad sentence. They met wherever it was conducive for them to have interaction with one another and with God. And so when we say the church is not a building, we're not saying that buildings are not important. We're just saying in the biblical sense, that is not what the church is. Some people have another mistaken identity or idea rather about the church. They feel that the the church is a governing authority. And, And so you'll hear them sometimes, sometimes even in a bitter way saying, well, we wanted to do that, but the church wouldn't let us. For example, we, we wanted to set up a clothing ministry in the annex, but the church wouldn't let us. As though the church is some kind of power structure, a mysterious power structure that's separate from them as believers. You know, they're not part of that. That organization just governs and makes, a, makes all kinds. And that's not accurate either. Not at all. There is governance in the church, and you as individuals who make up the membership of a church have to be a part of that. But biblically speaking, the church is not some kind of a law-giving organization at all. So much more than that. I've come to realize in recent years that a lot of people kind of see the church as a social club. Like, this is my social club. I don't know what your social club is. By the way, we talk about God there, but this is our social club. So they kind of see the church as as the sportsman's club or as the ham radio club or as the garden club or as the bowling club that they're part of. And if there's anything the church is not, it is not a social club. All you have to do is belong to a few social clubs and then belong to a church and hopefully you'll see a very stark difference. The church is a whole different kind of creature. And so you may be thinking, well, what is the church then? What's the biblical idea of the church? And a Greek word for church is ekklesia. And you're thinking, yeah, Greek, that just all sounds like Greek to me. That's right, it should. It is Greek. It is a Greek word. And what it means is an assembly of people who have been called together. You notice it doesn't say an assembly of lumber that has been nailed together. It doesn't say an assembly of a governance authority that is decreeing things. It doesn't say an assembly of people who have this common interest in gardening, so they get together on Tuesdays and talk about that. It's very explicit. It's an assembly of people who have been called together. And it doesn't even necessarily, that word ecclesia, it doesn't even necessarily need to be applied to a Christian concept, for example, a Christian organization. For example, in Acts chapter 19, when there's a riot in Ephesus and a town council is addressing that, they, they say that the ecclesia got together and decided this. So it was the town council. But the difference between a town council and us is that it is God who calls us together. We are his assembly. 
The church is the people of God who have been called together. Now, if you want a biblical picture of the church, the passage that I read earlier, Acts chapter 2, will kind of give you that. I read it a moment ago. It began with the words, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread and prayer. That's the picture of the New Testament church. Now, I just used a phrase, the New Testament church. And I want to talk about that for just a minute because, because I find sometimes people's opinions about the New Testament church are kind of amusing. When, when you talk about church in general, occasionally you'll hear a pastor or someone else just say, well, we really need to be like the New Testament church. And the implication is, if we could just be like the early church, the New Testament church, then we wouldn't have the problems that we have today. And when a person says that, they're really betraying a, a, a lack of awareness concerning, or they're showing a lack of awareness concerning what the New Testament church was like. When you read about the early church, the New Testament church, you see those assemblies of people were anything but perfect. For example, and I always work to use language that you'll understand that little ears won't be troubled by. So you can read between the lines, right? For example, in a church in in a city called Corinth, the church that met there, the people who met there to worship God and learn about Jesus and celebrate his grace and share his love, in that assembly of people, there was a guy who was engaged with his stepmom. Wow. And, and the Bible says, wow, even people that don't know Jesus know that that's wrong. But there it was in the church. That's not the only place you find that. In Galatia, people had come into the church who said, you know, salvation is not by grace through faith. If you really want to be a Christian, you're going to have to follow the Judaic law. In fact, men, you're going to have to be circumcised. They called them Judaizers because they tried to Judaize Christianity. And, and the Bible's real blatant about what ought, might ought to happen to people like that. That's a problem. It's a problem. But it was in the church, right there. In Philippi, there were two women who were struggling to get along, and the Bible kind of says to them, tell those women to get over themselves. Right in the church. There they were. It is amusing to me that anyone would think the New Testament church would be a perfect model. But then we turn around and we find people who say, so yeah, we can make church however we want it to be. Let's do this and we'll call this church. And you really can't do that either because where do you begin if you don't have some kind of a template? If you don't have some kind of an idea, at least, where to begin? So what we're going to do today, we're not going to use the New Testament church as a model of how we should do church because we live in a whole different era. But what we are going to do is look at the New Testament church here in this passage when it was very healthy and when it's being portrayed with its positive qualities. And we're going to pick two or three of those and say, those are things that ought to mark us as a church. And if they do, wow, that'll be pretty cool. We're going to draw this biblical sketch. It's not really a picture because it's not complete with this biblical sketch of the church. Now, one of the characteristics of these people that met together in Acts chapter 2 was devotion. In fact, they were devoted to very specific things. Think of the word devotion. What does that mean? It means my heart belongs to you. I am devoted to Laurel Ann Shields. She is mine. And that devotion was characteristic of these people, but it wasn't just to their wives or their husbands. They were devoted to some, pretty other, to some other things that were pretty important as well. You see it in verse 42. Read it. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread and prayer. And then four verses later in verse 46, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. 
So they are devoted specifically to the teaching of the Word of God. August 26th, just a month ago, you sat right where you're sitting here, and we talked about where do you look when you have a need, and we said you look to the Word of God. (laughs) That's what we do. That's what they were doing. They couldn't really look to the Bible because the New Testament wasn't written at this point. The church is only a few days old by now. Rather, they looked to the men who would later write the words of Scripture, many of the words of Scripture, and they devoted themselves to that teaching. And they didn't need anyone to tell them that. They didn't need someone to say, you know what, if you want to be a follower of Jesus, you're going to have to plug in to the teaching from God. They just knew to do that. So do you. So do you. That's why you're here. That's what we're doing right now. I am teaching you from the word of God, and you're devoted to that because you want to learn that. That's part of being a healthy church. But there's more than that. Second, I can see the early church devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, to sharing meals together. They ate together. Now, some people think, well, the breaking of bread, that just means communion, right? No, absolutely not. Communion could have been included in that. In fact, I think it was in Corinth. But eating together, eating a meal together was a first century way of bonding together. It is today as well. Think about this. When was the last time you had someone in your home to share a meal with you? If you're anything like most of uh, this day and age, it's been a while, right? But I want you to think back. When did we have someone over and just enjoy a meal together with them? And I'll bet as you recall that moment, you think to yourself, that was a good time. That was some of the best time I've had with that couple or with that individual or with that family. Because during that time, that meal that you had together knit your hearts together. It helped you bond. Every youth leader knows this. When you get a couple youth groups together and nobody's talking with one another, you have that awkward teen silence, like, oh, I don't know what I should say here. All you have to do is slap down a couple pizzas, and man, the walls just come down. Because it seems that God has ordained eating as a way to help people connect together. You're all teenagers, you know that. I slap a pizza down in front of you, you'll you'll be chomping and chattering like teenage girls or teenage boys, right? It just happens. It happens that way. We all put up walls. But when you have a meal together, you get to know one another and those walls come down. There's a third devotion I see in the early church. It's right in this text and that is a praying together. (laughs) They prayed, they communicated with God together. If you have never prayed with someone, I mean just the two of you praying together, you're really missing something. Because prayer tends to create a closeness between you and the one you're praying with and between you and God all at the same time. Prayer speaks love, deep Christian love. That's the beauty of prayer. And that's the beauty of church. This is church. The early church was marked by these kind of specific devotion. They were also marked by a sense of the supernatural. They knew that what was happening there was not something that these fishermen could have orchestrated. They just weren't slick enough to do this. They, uh, Peter, James, John, how could they possibly have, have manufactured what we're observing here? And so it says in verse 43, everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and signs, at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. They said, God must be doing this. God must be doing this. And they were amazed by that and they anticipated that God would do more. They trusted him to do more. They had a sense of the supernatural. This is church. Additionally, they had a a 
special sensitive concern for one another. It says all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. So they looked out for one another. They saw the blessings God had given them as something that they could share with one another so that they could share the love of Christ with one another. This is church. Now, when you talk about things like this, you might think to yourself, you know, I tried finding that kind of thing in church. And frankly, it wasn't there. We've all had that experience. There are times in my life when I could say the very same thing. It's not there. But generally, that's my fault. Not the fault of God. Not even the fault of God's people. So I want to talk to you about how to look to your church. How do you look toward your church and engage your church and participate in your church so you can experience what we're talking about here, what I read about toward the start of the message? Let me begin by saying that you're going to need to lose the myth that says you can be discipled casually. Do you understand that sentence? Lose the myth that says you can be discipled casually. You can't be discipled on the side. (laughs) Discipleship cannot be a hobby for you. Your Christian faith can't be just something like, yeah, every now and again. And that is why Jesus, when he talks about following him, he says no one who puts their hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. And those words might seem kind of harsh, like, Jesus, come on, would you lay off? I thought you were full of grace and truth. That's the truth part of the grace and truth thing, right? He's not really being harsh at all. He's being kind because he's letting you know that you can't be a casual Christian. Following Jesus is labor. Now, let me say this. Becoming a Christian is not labor. You do not become a Christian by doing, doing, doing. You become a Christian by recognizing it's done. That Jesus paid it all. That he died for your sins. And because of his death on the cross, you can be forgiven and you can have eternal life and you can become part of his family, the church. When you're in that family and you choose to follow him, it's labor. The Bible calls it labor. It says, I don't want you to think that your labor in the Lord is for nothing. And, and, and the scripture says in Galatians, the apostle Paul says to Christians there, I feel like I might've labored, that's work, uh, for nothing, in vain for you. It's work. Anything you do in the kingdom of God takes energy. It takes work. It is time consuming. Anything that you do for your church family and in your church family is going to take time that you could have spent somewhere else. You're going to have to choose how to budget your time, how to proportion it, how to use it. And it is spiritually challenging to follow Jesus inside of a church family. Anything you do with other people will expose their sin and your sin. And anything you do in your church family will expose their sin and your sin. But that's okay. That's okay because of grace. And that's okay because that energy, that time, and that exposure will actually contribute potentially to your growth as a Christian. And that is why you generally don't get discipled with TV church or with internet church. You will not grow in your faith simply by watching a good preacher on television. 
You will not become more like Jesus by reading Facebook memes. You will not become more Christ-like by listening to Christian radio or to podcasts. Those things are great, but they are not complete discipleship packages. Discipleship is designed to work when people are with people. Real flesh and blood people. Real imperfect people. People with whom you will experience personal sanctification. When you read the stories of the early church, you find stories of disagreement, sharp disagreement, that ended in reconciliation. You find in the New Testament stories of Christians filled with sinful pride transformed into godly humility. You find grudge holding between Christian brothers and sisters melting into forgiveness and even into companionship. You find all those things, but you only find them if the church is gathered together. You see it in the New Testament. And if you want to experience things like that, that kind of personal growth, you can't get it by clicking like on a post. And you can't get it while you're in your recliner watching TV church. And you don't get it by typing comments on a live stream. And you don't get it by subscribing to a podcast, even Kerwinsville Alliance podcast. You just can't get it that way. But when you interact with real people, you learn by example. In the first service, Jeff Spade is an elder who attends that service faithfully. He prays. He's the elder that prays. It's like the elders here take turns, but Jeff, he's a lone cowboy, so he prays every week. I love hearing him pray because as a little boy, Jeff attended this church. And he will thank God for this church, meaning not the building, but the people. And he'll say, I thank you. And he'll name names of people who are dead. And his heart is saying, because I was around those people, I learned from their positive example. Thank you for that. You learn when you are with real people in your church. You learn positive example. You learn negative examples too. Like, oh yeah, boy, that guy, he's not quite down the pike as far as I thought he was, spiritually speaking. Neither am I. I just saw in him what I should have seen in myself right along. It's because we're with real people. Real God, real life, real people. Additionally, you learn through conflict. You learn how to disagree with people and how to to say, well, that's not really that important. I love you anyway. The vignette that I read at the start was a real vignette from my former church. When I looked up from reading the scripture, my head elder was gone. I'm like, how am I going to do communion? Where did you go? And he went back to talk to his friend. He apologized to his friend for something rude he had said, and then he came up and did communion. That can't happen unless you're with a group of human beings. You won't experience that kind of growth. And you learn through that conflict, and you learn even through praying together. How did you learn to pray so well? When you pray, I just feel like you move the hand of God. Really, I just, I don't know, I just heard other people praying because I was around people. You learn by praying. All this happens when you drop the myth that you can experience discipleship casually. You can't. Right along with that, you need to make your church family a priority. So 1954, I'm going to tell you like three things before I read this quote, and you're going to be like, why do I care about those things? But I got to do it because it kind of puts it in context. In 1954, former President Dwight D. Eisenhower, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, I don't even care about Eisenhower, right? 
Well, he quoted a guy named J. Roscoe Miller. Pastor Steve, this is getting even more obscure. Miller happened to be a professor at Northwestern University. Who knows where that is, right? Okay, so I got all that out of the way. Now listen to the quote. Listen to this statement that Eisenhower felt was worth repeating. Miller says this, I have two kinds of problems, the urgent and the important. (laughs) I have two kinds of problems, the urgent and the important. And then he says, the urgent are not important and the important are never urgent. Now, that became known as the Eisenhower Principle. It is said that that is how he organized his workload and priorities as the President of the United States. I got to tell you, I have the same problem. My phone buzzes, and I got to look at that. It's a Facebook message, right? And I look at it because it's urgent, and it takes me away from what I was doing over here that was important. And then when I read it, it says, please forward this message about multiple sclerosis awareness to seven friends today. And I'm like, Who's sending me that junk? And if it's you, I'm sorry, stop. Because it's urgent, but it's not important. And that's not going to cure MS. What will cure MS is when people sacrificially give to scientists so that they can work that out and come to a conclusion. Forwarding those messages is just urgent and unimportant. And probably 90% of the things that attracts your attention and mine, not just on your smartphone, but in your daily life, in your reading habits, in your conversation, in your hobbies, probably, I don't know if 90% is an overstatement or not, but a lot of it is urgent and not important. The urgent things, <laughs> Eisenhower says, they're, they're not important. And, uh, and he says the important never seem to be urgent. You want to focus on the urgent, not, I'm sorry, you want to focus on the important, not the urgent. And maybe our failure to do this is why the word of God says, let's consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. And and let's not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let's encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. You hear what God's saying? He's saying, make your church family a priority because it is important. And third, contribute sacrificially to this cause that you believe in. I'm not asking for your money. I want to make that real clear, okay? I don't think I've ever asked for money. And I'm not doing that right now. I'm asking you for more than that. (laughs) You see, God is not after your money. And that's the first thing we think when we think contribute. He is not after your money. He is after your heart. The only reason it feels like money is because of what Jesus says. Well, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is also. So if you feel like it's always about money, that's because your heart is always on money. God doesn't want your money. He wants your heart. So I am unapologetically encouraging you to make a commitment that demonstrates your belief. I am encouraging you to contribute sacrificially to this cause that you believe in. I am encouraging you to make a commitment that says you believe that God ordained your church right here in Clearfield County, this assembly that you are now interacting with. He ordained it to make an eternal difference. He did. I am asking you to commit sacrificially to making your church effective. And listen, I'm not asking you to do that for your own sake. Nor am I asking you to do that for the sake of others. I am asking you to make this kind of sacrificial commitment for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb who was slain. You know that's his title, right? 
In the book of Revelation, it says John looked and, and behold, he saw a lamb looking as though it had been slain. And that was Jesus, the lamb of God who took away the sins of the world by dying on the cross, purchasing men and women with his blood. His death purchased souls. His death, the lamb who was slain. In the 1700s, the Moravian church sent out some missionaries to minister to African slaves on the island of St. Thomas and St. Croix. Now, I, I would love if God called me to ministry on the island of St. Thomas or St. Croix. I mean, the white sand, the, the, the water. I mean, you're so far from the New York Harbor, there's no pollution at all in that water, right? And wow, the sunlight and the ocean breezes, the palm trees, I would like that kind of ministry. But wait, they're going to minister to African slaves. And the slave owner who's running that colony for his own profit has a rule that those slaves are not allowed to speak to any outside influence. And so missionaries have gone before and said, I want to tell them about Jesus. And he said, no, get out of here. They're my slaves, leave them alone. And so these two young men, Johann Dober and David Nietzsche, they were Moravian missionaries. They decided that they would sell themselves into slavery on those islands with those African slaves. I can't go in there and talk to them, but I'll sell myself to be one of them. And then I can tell them about Jesus. They were in their early 20s. The story goes that as they boarded the ship and waved goodbye to their families, who they would never see again, because this was a lifelong deal. Their words rang out. Listen to their words. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. Do you get it? They're not doing it for themselves. They're not doing it for the African slaves. They're doing it for the lamb who was slain because he deserves the reward for his suffering. That's what I'm asking you to do. Just give the lamb who was slain what he deserves of you. I'm not asking you to become a missionary. Only God can call you to become a missionary. But I am asking you to contribute sacrificially to the cause of the lamb who was slain. And listen to this. (laughs) When you do, you will look to your church and you'll find it worth looking to. I'm not here just to talk about hunting and the outdoors. I want to talk to you about where you'll spend eternity. I may be pretty successful in all these films I've showed you of me in the woods, but without Jesus, I'm just lost in the wilderness. And you are too. This is church. I have two shopping lists. I have one for our family and one for the food pantry collection. God, thank you so much for providing for my family so we can give so generously to others. This is church. A troubled teen is waiting in line at the site of a pool in a backyard on an August evening just outside of Knox, Pennsylvania. He hasn't been living the Christian life, but his pastor's wife suggested that he get baptized. So he's waiting his turn. I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Splash in a swimming pool. 
It doesn't really seem like a big deal, but just a few years later, that young man is embarking on a pastoral ministry that endorsed for decades. This is church. I want to pray that this would be your church right here in Clearfield County. So if you're comfortable doing so, let's stand and pray. Let's bow our hearts. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful that you have called us together in this assembly. We understand that it wasn't that we got up this morning and said, hey, I think I'll go to church, but that somewhere along the way, you called us by name and said, I want you to be part of the ecclesia here in Clearfield County on Susquehanna Avenue. We thank you for that call. We are so blessed by that call. I pray that we would look to this gathering, to this group of people, as someone from whom we can receive great blessing that comes from you and as ones whom we can give great blessing that comes from you. May our experience with church be something that would benefit each of us, sanctify each of us, influence the world, but most importantly, may it glorify the lamb who was slain giving him the reward for his suffering. For it's in his name we pray, amen.